0: Thanks for listening to the Sell My Business Podcast, brought to you by Acme Business Brokers. Acme Business Brokers is a matchmaker for buyers and sellers of select businesses. We help our clients identify, refine, evaluate, and leverage their assets, leading to the successful sell or purchase of their business. So I wanted to take a minute and uh, just as a new or existing listener, make you aware of a free tool that we have available for you. And whether you're a buyer or potential buyer of a business or whether you're a business owner that's looking to sell your company, we have created a free tool which is uh, yours for the taking. If you head to our website, which is acmebizbrokers.com, and then right there on the main page, just click on the link for the acquisition preparedness checklist. And then there's one for buyers and then there's one for sellers. And uh, what's useful about this is a lot of times when individuals start to think about selling or buying a business, it's a good idea to just start understanding some of the factors that you'll have to deal with at some point during your transaction. And we've organized a fairly comprehensive set of questions and then put them into a checklist format so that you can use them quite easily to just get a beat on what you're facing, uh, what you'll need to think about and uh, what all will be involved in the purchase or sale of a business. So go on over there and grab that. Again, it's a free tool. It's called the Acquisition Preparedness Checklist right off the main page of Bizbrokers dot com. Enjoy it. Let's begin here. I want to start by welcoming Walter Carnes. He's our guest for today's Sell My Business podcast. It's a little bit of a special podcast in the sense that the topic is may seem like it's fairly niche, but it's actually very relevant because many of the things we'll discuss. Transfer directly to other business operations. And a lot of the same considerations come up in all types of businesses. So, Walt, I've, I met Walt through a mutual friend and colleague and have been collaborating with him on a couple of different projects. And he's with a firm here in Bowling Green, Kentucky, United Country Real Estate, and the Heartland Group, Heartland Realty Auction Group. And it's been a pleasure to get to know him a little bit over the last six months or so. Yeah, six months, yeah. maybe nine, yeah. something like that. We've been collaborating on one project in particular, but I've been every time I talk to Walt, I learn something. So I wanted to get him on here and to talk a little bit about what he does. In the intro, you heard my description or bio for Walt. But Walt, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and sort of what your area of expertise is?
1: Okay, well I grew up in um Starkville, Mississippi, which is where Mississippi State is. I uh, went to Mississippi State, majored in dairy science and then after got out of that, went into the dairy business for about ten years, milking cows and growing feed crops and soybeans in the Starkville area. Did that for about ten years. Got a chance to move into the Mississippi Delta into farm management with a old high school buddy and Spent about 10 years in the Delta farming and managing farms. Got married and had kids kid and all of that stuff, you know, that, that happens after that. Started out managing for what turned out to be my brother-in-law. <laughs> so took over some of the family land that uh, they had, and we farmed that until about 1988 when we moved to Bowling Green. And when I moved up here, I had always had a lot of interest in auctions. There was an auction in Duck Hill, Mississippi, that a group or a firm out of Franklin, Kentucky, which is where I live, was doing on a big track of land that I think John Hancock might have owned it and they were selling it. I met them, uh, went to that auction and met the people and ended up moving up here and going to work for them. We put together several auctions in Mississippi. Did a 10,000 acre auction all up and down Highway 45 and did it at the Golden Triangle Airport. That was a very interesting auction. Met a lot of great people. Had a great time. Very successful sale, which led to some others. So that's kind of what got me up here. And then a little bit after that, I had a chance. I got into real estate too. Got a real estate license. My wife had gotten a real estate license in uh, Mississippi. And being farm family, she wanted the kind of major or her, her business was going to be farms. And it was kind of such that she'd get them listed and I'd show them. <laughs> <laughs> so i knew that that part of it i didn't have a license to list them but she did and then she could go along with me and or we just made a kind of a team out of it and and would uh show farms and uh, that worked pretty good but anyway that i brought that back up here got a real estate license and did farms uh houses was a uh, i had the exclusive for city financial on their repossessions. And this was kind of right before the big crisis of 2008 or nine. And I think they were kind of part of that, that debacle right in there. But I ended up with several foreclosures and sold from um, Hopkinsville to Tompkinsville and uh, from Elizabethtown down to the state line, South of Franklin. So that whole area right in there, provided pretty good many auction or foreclosures, had a a lot of experience in working deals that were hard because the circumstances were not good, but it provided a lot of experience. In the meantime, I was selling farmland, got a property over in eastern Kentucky, which was about 5,400 acres of coal mining property. It was three mountains and It was called Path Fork. Um, I kind of named it Path Fork Energy Resource Property because it had a lot of other things other than coal on it. It it had been in the family since 1912, and it started out as two business partners. They weren't related. Started acquiring land in the Path Fork um, Middlesbrough area by 1912, and by 1920 or 22, I think they had about little over 5,000 acres of uh, coal mining property over there. It was a, they were a land company. They weren't in the coal mining business, but the uh, property was developed to mine coal. It had several underground mines and a lot of timber, had a big sawmill on it. At one time I was told there were 5,000 people living on that one property right there. (laughs) When I listed it or when I was talking to the guy who, was uh, representing it uh, it was a true c corporation when it was set up and it had been maintained like that but it had gotten to the point where there were 16 major stockholders and those 16 got to the point where they couldn't agree on a lot of things and when we finally got it sold there were 64 checks cut that's how the um how it was divided up so that right there kind of taught me that there's a lot of things that need to be done to plan a uh, liquidation other than just saying, well, I think we need to sell because this thing probably should have been sold 10 years before it it actually was because of that situation right there. It would have been a whole lot easier. And in the end, we had to hire a, a private investigator, a firm, to find three heirs And one of them was in San Francisco, living under a bridge. We made his day when when they found him. (laughs) But I don't remember what size check he got, but I'm sure he he appreciated it. So he might have been able to buy a little bit bigger box to live in under that bridge. But anyway, that was quite an experience. But in the meantime, after I had met several people that had farming operations in the midwest and uh, one of them had a big dairy development operation where he built dairy farms for dutch landowners or dairy farmers and they would come over here with a suitcase full of money it's pretty easy to get a visa if you had a million dollars on a suitcase that you were bringing here to put in a in a business back in uh, the early 2000s and uh, he could get them a visa pretty quick with something like that they'd leave holland and uh, come over here be two days later would be milking 1500 cows in an operation that uh, was set up sp- and built especially for them, they couldn't speak any English, and most of the people that were working for them couldn't speak any English either. they, they Their native language was Spanish. So,
0: <laughs> so diversity, of it, it, yeah, it was. <laughs> it,
1: it was. It was quite a deal. But those were some really interesting operations right there. And there's there's one similar here in the Russellville area, and we went out and visited it one time. Uh,
0: that was a good day too. So. So obviously, how Walt and I started collaborating is there was a business that we've been talking to that is looking to potentially exit, the owners are, and it obviously involves agriculture and farming, and uh, we needed an expert. So we collaborate and partnered with Walt. And looking at the business, that one in particular has two or three kinds of operations on the, um, the land. What are the common models that you see? For these types of transactions where there's vast acreage and then they have farming operations. what are the, You were just mentioning like dairy farming, but there's probably like models.
1: Well, yeah, there's dairy and there's uh, beef operations. A lot of uh, dairy operations will have a small beef herd because they either want to incorporate or, or they have... Bull calves or something that they can't, you can sell them as a baby and, or you can raise them on out and sell them at a a little bit higher weight and make a little money off of them that way. But most, I won't say most, but a lot of uh, dairy operations will have a small beef herd too, if they have the land that will accommodate it. Some of them, if you've got a big grain acreage, they'll have a hog operation too, because you can increase the value of the corn. Uh, By running it through a pig, and uh, selling the pig that way, and that's there was an article written a long time ago that I wish I had saved, and I have tried and tried. I've googled about everything I could think of trying to to locate that article, and it was in Farm Journal, and it the title was not this, but it was basically how great great grandson lost great great granddaddy's farm. And uh, when great-great-granddaddy or maybe great-great-great-granddaddy came over here from Europe, they moved on a piece of land and uh, it had woods on it. It had a rock pile on it. It had some good bottom land, just, you know, a typical what what I call Kentucky type farm here. We have the same thing. And they started trying to figure out how to uh, make money. I mean that that was how to support the family and that that was what they they did and they found out that they could raise crop in the bottom land but they'd have some land over here that was uh full of rocks and um they could take that corn that they could grow and store it and then feed it to uh, hogs or something like that and those hogs could live on those rocks real easy it was easy to feed off of that you didn't have to pour any concrete (laughs) so and then they had some pasture land where they grew grass, and uh, you couldn't farm it because it was probably too steep. So, they put a few cows out there. They would have beef cows or beef, and then they might throw a, a few dairy cows in there, dairy type animals, and uh, decide to milk them. And so, and they always had chickens running around on the uh, farm lot, and, and so they had eggs and chicken for Sunday dinner and all of this kind of stuff. And as the family grew, the need for bringing family members into the operation was there too. You didn't have a job you could go to in town. So the family farm became you know, quite an operation. You might have one son doing this and one son doing that and another one doing another operation. So it just uh, grew into a big family farm, but it, in today's structure people you know might look at that and say well that's a corporate farm right there but it's actually a big family farm with a lot of different fingers in it or you know avenues that produce cash and uh, they also produce debt too in a lot of cases but they produce cash so as times went on and the farm was kind of passed down through the family to a certain person or a a certain family member because you as, as time passed and it was easier to go to town and get a job where you didn't have to work quite so hard you had a steady paycheck some of the family members wanted to do that Um, a lot of the girls in the family decided that they didn't want to farm they and the husbands that they married didn't want to farm either they weren't farm they weren't raised on a farm so it got to the point where you might have a family of uh, five or six children and three of them didn't want to farm and say two did well those two brothers right there might form a you know a partnership with the farm and then something might happen to one of them and you get get it down to one well that one decided you know well there's a whole lot of work here I can cut some of this out one of these operations because I'd a whole lot rather uh grow row crops than I had to feed and go out and feed pigs or feed cattle in the middle of the winter, so so they would start cutting out these, yes part these operations. And as they would cut them out, they didn't realize. Or I'm sure they probably did, but they at that time it didn't matter. They were cutting out cash flow. So as they would cut one out, all of a sudden the the cash flow was gone mm-hmm. for and that diversified that, cash yeah, flow. Yeah, the diversified <laughs> cash flow because all of these you know markets for all of this stuff go up and down and what might be up for one is down for another one and um with cattle operations a lot of times uh, cattle and row crop operations the row crop might the the prices for grains might be really good which is bad for the cattle operation because it 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 makes a higher cost to feed cattle whereas if if the the corn or whatever the the price drops out of that then it's good for the uh, cat, the farming operation on the cattle. So you, the diversity there, it all averages out in the end. So your cash flow is still, you know, relatively good, even though each operation may, may not have the best thing. And with the tax structure that we have now, a lot of these farms have kind of made different operations out of them where one's losing money and another one's making money. So, you know, in the end, the, you've got tax benefits with it too. So... All of that comes into play. But back to the great-great-grandson, as he cut things out, it cut out cash flow. And before long, he got down to where he was just row cropping and going. uh, He'd farm in the summertime and spend the wintertime down in Florida playing golf and out on the beach or whatever. And then he'd come back in, in the spring and plant a crop and get it to where he didn't need to do anything for it till harvest, and he'd go back to Florida or go to the mountains or whatever and, you know, have a good time. Well, all that cost a little money. So when he came back and harvested his crop one year, he just he had a short crop, and he didn't have enough money to pay out. So, you know, it kind of just built and built, and the, he didn't have the other operations to offset some of this stuff. And before long, he, he had lost—his uh, ancestors had built, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of the way— it has come. So, some, so of the,
0: yeah, some of the other things that are kind of related to this uh, that you and I were just talking about uh, a while ago, the other ways that farmers have chosen to diversify or to augment their cash flow in terms of like real estate, commercial development, uh, frontage rose was one way you were mentioning to me. There's other stuff too, but what some of these other things they've done has have also impacted their overall operations. Maybe describe that.
1: Yeah, one. well – thing that I kind of know a little bit about is as as I was meeting people, I met a farmer in uh, Ohio that they were farming about 35,000 acres, he and his brother, and uh, they had several sons and a son-in-law that needed to come into the operation, but they had rented about all the land they could rent in that area. So it was time to figure out another avenue and uh, when he and I got to talking and he found out that that I had connections or roots to, in Mississippi and specifically the Mississippi Delta, he had been through the Mississippi Delta and had tried to rent some land down there, but didn't have any much luck. So anyway, we ended up renting land down there. We And two of the sons and the son-in-law just moved their operations or or their parts down there so in trying to make an operation that would support them they ended up having to relocate and that may be what some of this stuff or some of these operations may end up having to do is you know you have to go where the opportunity is we ended up setting up a a 20,000 acre farming operation in the uh, Mississippi Delta and one of them is down there now. The other one is, is still back in uh, Ohio, the other brother. And he kind of runs back and forth between the two. And one of them has, has moved down there to run that. So that, that's the way it, you, you can kind of diversify there. Uh, has relocated. Some of these operations here and anywhere, I guess, you'll if you ride up and down roads, you see all of a sudden three or four or five houses, you know, right next to together or scattered out down a road and uh in behind it is a big farmland and that was probably a situation where they came up with a short crop one year and needed uh some cash and decided that joe blow in in town had expressed an interest that if they ever wanted to sell a lot they they'd buy it and build a house and that that's way a lot of this stuff happens is they'll either sell them a lot or subdivide a corner or, uh, you know, where you got two roads coming in together and you got a lot of road frontage right in that one little area and you can sell off some lots and maybe build a street down through the middle of it. Produce some cash flow, just selling selling land. So that's some way to diversify a lot of this. Um, So in renting is another model. Yeah, renting land is an opportunity and there is a whole lot of, probably the majority of land it's actually rented land with an absentee owner, and I say absentee. He may he may may live in town, or he or she may live in town or on on the farm. But it's farmed by somebody else, and that that's where a lot of smaller operations have been combined by one farmer renting land, another one retiring and renting his farm to somebody else, and that's kind of uh, the way farms have grown now. You might have somebody that fifteen years ago was farming five hundred acres, and today they're farming five or six thousand because of the need. I mean, that's about what it takes in order to to have a pretty successful row crop operation in this part of the world. Yeah, you need space. Yeah, you got you got to have acreage. It's it's just like anything
0: else. Volume now is what it takes. Having a lot of the like in this, I don't, I, I'm not. I'm asking you, but having a lot of the land parcels here been segmented up to smaller portions now. I mean there's not a lot of contiguous Well, there land. there are not a
1: lot of big farms and that was, you know, there are a lot of big farmers, but there's not a lot of big contiguous land farms because back 100 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, you could farm say 150 acres, 160 to two 80, 300, something like that. A family could handle that with the tractors the size they were with 45 to 65-horsepower tractors. Uh, I can remember in the 60s when 100-horsepower tractors were coming in, then about 112 something like that, uh, horsepower, and it seemed like you'd move the world with them. You were still pulling equipment with them that you used when you were farming with about 50 horsepower tractors, and it was a whole lot easier to uh, get things done, and now today tractors have grown into 350 to four hundred, five hundred, six hundred 500, 600 horsepower four-wheel drive tractors. So it just like, but they're still farming on land that uh, is actually – owned in, say, 180-acre tracts or something like that, because that's what the, the has been passed down through the generations, and it's rented to to the bigger farmers. It's, it's rented
0: that way. So it's like a consolidation of operations and resources. Yeah,
1: but the consolidation, I guess for a little while maybe land was, was kind of bought. You always heard the old saying that uh, I don't want to own the whole world. I just want to own what's, what joins me. As a par- parcel came up for sale, a lot of times it was bought by the adjoining farmer. He just incorporated it into his operation, and that's uh, the way it was passed or it was transferred. And the operations got a little bigger. The land tracks or what, what was deeded to a particular uh, farmer, would grow a little bit. And to me, that's the way land prices have kind of escalated, really beyond what really makes a business sense in that when you have somebody wanting to buy something and it joins him, he's willing to pay a whole lot more for it than somebody who just comes in right. fr- from out of the area and says, ah, that that land's not worth that. Well, it's it's not to him, but it, it is to the guy that that joins it. A lot of times his was already paid for, so it didn't make a whole lot of difference. You know, he just might put up his whole, farm operation to buy the other piece, even though the dollars and cents didn't make a whole lot of sense. Up until, I want to say uh, 10 years ago, eight years ago, the Mississippi Delta itself, and that's what I probably know more about, was, I want to say, one of the last areas where you could rent land based off of what it would produce. There was a lot of land that was bought by hedge fund REITs and some pretty rich individuals who were trying to diversify their portfolio. They pull money out of the stock market and stick it in land. Because land is a pretty stable investment. It doesn't return a whole lot of money, but it, it is stable and it appreciates. So you've got two or three things going for you there. But the land in Mississippi would kind of if be based off of it would return, say, 5%. Of what it cost back to you every year so if you were if you paying cash for land you could usually make about five percent off of it on the rent which you know wasn't great but it was steady and it was pretty safe yeah because you had it yeah. was consistent you had that cash coming in plus You had to land and, you know, it wasn't going to die on you. It wasn't going to break down on you or anything like that. And so, you know, it was something that was a firm investment that you were making. Plus, it would return money. Yeah, so, true definition of an asset. Yeah, it was a true asset. Yeah. It wasn't like a piece, uh, you know, a stock or something like that, that that would go
0: up and down or have no value. So, now you one thing you mentioned, which I want to touch on, and you have experience with this, is uh, institutional money started pouring in, like you said, about a decade ago. Yeah, they were. Talk about that just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. We rented
1: a lot of land down there from institutions that were, that had money in them that were. One area that I I know specifically was a lot of states, the teachers, public school pension funds would go into into a fund. And a lot of those funds ended up in land investments. Hmm. And it was they kind of wanted them that way because they were stable. They wouldn't make a whole lot of money, but it was something it was a whole lot less risk than the stock market. And if you had a pretty conservative group that was running it, running the fund, they didn't want a whole lot of risk. They, you know, they they weren't out to try and get 20% on it. As, as long as it would return five or four or 5%, they were pretty happy. This one particular fund that we rented land from at one time had over $20 billion. To invest in farmland. Now, they invested all in Mississippi, but they invested a pretty good bit. But they, they went from something like having no land in Australia to having about uh, being the largest non-Australian landowner in Australia. Hmm. And this was back in the um, early 2010, 11s in there. Now that wasn't all Teacher fund money or anything like that. There it, it was a big institution that had a lot of money yeah. coming in, it. Yeah. but that was something that was really interesting. They had all of this money and they needed to put it somewhere to go to work. This was when the stock market had fallen out, you know, the right after the uh, big housing collapse and everything. And they just pulled a lot of money out of a lot of things, and they just had cash and they needed to put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did was put it in farmland. They, they bought a lot of farms, nut farms in California. They were a big buyer in California and Florida in orange groves and uh, stuff like that. Uh, they bought a lot of uh, row crop land in the Midwest and in, in the Mississippi Delta. I don't know whether they got into Texas or not, but I'm, I feel fairly sure they got into uh, Rio Grande Valley. But that, you know, is is a place that a lot of money goes that people have no idea. You know, it's really interesting. I went to an auction in um, Ohio and there was a 5,000 acre track that was owned by this dairy development company. And that's how I got to know uh, a little bit about it was they owned it. And and he asked me, the guy that owned it, wanted me to come up there and take a look at it because he needed to sell it dairying had gotten pretty bad, and he needed to try and liquidate that that farm. He was at one time going to develop himself and put a 25,000-cow dairy operation on it. Mm. He had it permitted to milk 25,000 cows on But when it ended up going to auction, and the person that ended up buying it, and I'm sure he probably knows that he bought it, but he probably doesn't, was Bill Gates, Microsoft guy? Mm-hmm. It was his foundation that ended up with that property. Yeah, they've been buying a lot of land. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> a big landowner in the United States. I think Ted Turner might be one of the largest, the largest in the United States individual that owns land. Uh, but Bill Gates owns a lot of land too. They're a great person, you know, a great organization to to have as a landlord because they're into preserving land, doing what it takes to make it produce to its maximum. Plus, they're very environmental uh, folks too. Hmm. And there was a we rented some land from a lady uh who ran a hedge fund in Mississippi. She's in Kansas City now, but her big deal was environmental. She wanted land that was sustain what the sustainable agriculture market was just kind of beginning to take off where you could do things. It wasn't organic type, but it was pretty close. You, you had to, you know, do a lot of things. And and that and she was trying to get that kind of money brought into her fund. So there are a whole lot of ways to diversify that. You know, there are a lot of niche markets there and, and places you can shop for money to buy these farms. But we rented a piece of land from her, it had had a, a tenant on it the year before that didn't do a real good job of farming it. And uh, she, she had just bought it. When we got it, it was uh, pretty well grown up. It was really ugly looking farm. But when we got it, one of the things that we had to do was try and be as environmentally friendly with it as we could. And we went in and no-tilled it. We burned everything down that that was grown up there and planted it without tilling any land on it or any ground. And it was really ugly. I mean, it it was about as bad a condition as you you were going to go as far as the way it looked. It was not pretty when we planted And uh, there were a lot of local people. This is the first year we were down there, and there were a lot of local people that thought we were crazy doing that. But she had been a hedge fund manager for Goldman Sachs in New York. She ran a several billion dollar fund up there, and had become quite wealthy on her own. And she spent over a million dollars of her own money and developed the first agricultural REIT that was IRS approved. This was back fifteen years ago. So pioneering, yeah, pioneering. It was. Yeah. There were after after she got that thing approved. There were people coming to her and wanting to know how she did it and all this kind of stuff. And she'd look at it and say, "I just spent a million bucks trying to figure out how to get this thing passed, and you want me to tell you how to do it?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, open source. Uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. That that's gonna work real well. So anyway. To try and get her some publicity for her fund, she got, I think, she got Lou Dobbs. She she had known him in New York. She got him, or she told him what she was doing, and uh, he sent a camera crew and a little lady down here, or down to uh, Mississippi, to film what we were doing. And that was really interesting, too. But there was quite a little documentary made out of that thing. But as we were planting, I know that anybody that was watching that thing and seeing what we were planting in just said they're getting ready to lose everything they got right there. (laughs) And, you know, it it was not a sure thing that this was going to happen, turn out well, but it did. You know, two months later everything that had been burned down was dead and on the ground and soybeans had come in there we planted on um 30 inch rows and i think we had one planter that we planted on 15 inch rows they had come in they had grown shaded everything out and you never would have known what was out there and every uh, there were some weeds that were six or seven feet tall that we planted in and they were on the ground by this this time you couldn't see the tops of any of that and it those beans made really good beans that year Mm. and everybody around there was really surprised and and most of the spraying at that time and still is is done with airplanes in the in the delta fields are pretty good size are big it's flat tree lines are pretty much gone now they're Power lines are not quite as uh, prevalent as they used to be. They mer- pretty much run up and down roads. Uh, they don't run out through the middle of fields. But the ag pilot that we used his little airstrip was probably seven miles from this this farm, and he said as soon as he got about three hundred feet off the ground, he could see that that one particular block. It was a thousand acres, but it just stood out the way it it, it had grown. Huh. So trying to do environmental things really helps this farm has since been developed into a um, farm that where they have ponds there was a pond built on it that you flood is about a 20 25 acre pond look like catfish pond but they would pump out of that pond and irrigate uh, what the rest of the farm so it was very interesting with that we irrigated down the road there have been a lot of things like that that have been done with with farms. And, and she has done a lot trying to preserve that and, and has gotten probably a lot of money that wouldn't have otherwise come in to the ag industry Innovation. with something
0: like that. Yeah, that's yeah, important. So one thing that we definitely have run into that's similar is when we start talking to business owners about where they're at with getting out of the business. And there's a variety of reasons for why they would get out of the business. We've come across this scenario where most, the majority of them, as a matter of fact, there was a study last year in Nashville that suggested over 70% have no exit plan. They they don't even have a plan on where to go or what to do next. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I don't wanna speak specifically to uh, commercial farming or to family farming that way, but what's your experience? My guess is it's probably higher than 70%. I would
1: say 90% of the farming operations have no real exit plan, and it comes down to necessity on the end that it has to be sold because there's either nobody that wants to carry it on, it's not big enough to be sustainable on its own, or you've had a – a sudden death or something like that, and and there is nobody to carry it on. But that's my guess is there's probably less than ten percent or around ten percent of the farming operations have some kind of exit plan, and it's you know so more reactive as as opposed yeah, to proactive. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. Not they're, strategic. No, it's not strategic. It's not. It's just when it happens. There needs to be. What? Why do you think that is? Because farming is a way of life. And a living, you know, it's a place to raise your family, live. I won't say everybody, but there are a lot. Most families live on their farm or on a piece of their own farm. They raise their family there. They The kids grow up raising animals in 4-H and FFA. You know, it's just a way of life. It's a place to hunt, fish, recreate. That's just the way it is. It's, it's more than, than a business but it needs to be treated more like a business and a business needs to have some kind of exit plan because at some point it will either be too big for one person to handle or it will not be big enough to make a living one of the two so there needs to be some way to either exit or expand it one one of those two things
0: are there advisors out there that actually coach in the area of uh, operations well the
1: extension service has Probably as close to a public advisory board, or I won't say board, but people that can help people. There, there are a lot of private foundations that I can't name you one specifically, but I know of foundations that I have read about that will offer expertise in, in how to set up a transfer or a, um, a way to exit. They'll analyze your your farming operation and kind of let you know whether it's time or when it may be time. And if they're, if they know that there's going to be a certain date, you need to start thinking about how you're going to get out. Mm-hmm. And there are ways that you can make it as, as easy as you want to, or as hard as you want to, as hard as it's going to be to get out. You can make it, you know, more profitable or, or lose money or whatever, however you want, you want to look at it. It, it can be, done in you know a good way or a bad way the worst thing i guess would be to just go completely broke and then have to have an auction sale on the courthouse steps and yeah that that'd be the worst yeah. whereas if two years before that you started trying to plan that you know it's getting i can see the handwriting on the wall that uh, this is a day out here that's that we're gonna have to liquidate and you start planning for that day it'll be a whole lot more I won't say it'll be easy, easy yeah. on your, your family or your nerves or whatever, but at least it'll be a way to get out without the yeah. complete devastation.
0: Yeah. Look at it like a, a runway at an airport, you know, if you know where the end of it is, yeah. <laughs> how much speed you need to get to. Yeah, that's Velocity. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting because the nature of your business. So you look at like how a business is valued based on, there's a variety of factors when we look at a company. Or business in terms of how to consider it, in terms of listing it, and uh, who would potentially buy it, um, how the financing works, all of that stuff. It's exactly the same. Well, yeah, for what you're doing, you've got with a farming operation, you've got,
1: and with a business, if if you've got real estate involved with a business or buildings or whatever, you've got the value there. Plus, you've got the business value or the income-producing value of it of the business to look at the you may be able to say well you know for a little bit of this right here you could do this with it and which would it may you you can't say i'm gonna charge you or or i expect to get this much out of it but it may be a way to add just a little bit of psychological value to it mm-hmm. to make it it's make so it folded into the yeah, it, cost per acre yeah or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. but with with agri with farms i mean you've got A lot of things to look at you've got the the housing part of it if you want to say that the buildings can they be renovated into something else if you've got and and then the the land itself it is going to have a just base farmland value Mm -hmm. uh, because it will be worth this just the whole world together but if it's have if it has a history of uh production or good production or bad production, either way, you know, you can take a look at that and, and come up with some kind of value on it. You can soil test it, see what's out there. You can use the, you can my, use the mining value out of it, the mineral value out of it and say, well, you know, you've got hmm. this out here to look at. It will, you know, it takes so much to grow a crop and there's already this out here you may you know, we may not have to have the fertilizer that this place down the road or across the yeah, county stages may have. of development. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, it's kind of that way too. So uh, and equipment, you equipment, tons of equipment. Yeah, if, well, you know, it depends. Yeah, you've you've got a lot of equipment, and you you've got that to look at as far as as a value. You you paid for all of that. You've probably used the IRS yeah, uh, for it, the, the depreciation <laughs> on it. Yeah. So you've got that to look at. And in selling out, a lot of times or selling a property. You've also got the IRS to look at when you come to that part of it. It's a big uh, part of it, isn't that, it. That's a big part of it. And there are, there are ways to get around that, but at least to be able to maybe put the the IRS off a little bit with um, tax exchanges and um, 1031 tax exchange sales, there's some companies out there that can do some some other type things structure sales Stru- structure sales to where you know you you may not receive all of the the income today but you get it over a period of eight to ten years something like that so you put off the the taxing value up out there on it so there's a lot of things that can be looked at there.
0: That's interesting. You and I have talked a lot about that, and we can maybe do a separate conversation on that once we both get more up to speed on that. Yeah. I, I, that's an interesting model for a it lot of It is. People.
1: And I think that probably over time, there will be more things uh, come in for a long time. The only thing there was out there was 1031 tactics, but there are other models being developed now that and other strategies. That, and those they, work in regular businesses. Oh yeah, too. they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And there's other things you
0: can do from a farming perspective that uh, are more based on offset of like certain crops and things like that as well, yeah. or commissions uh, for somebody who's you know selling large tickets. Well, items.
1: I saw a pr- presentation on a from a firm that uh, does these, and something that I had never heard of that they've said that you know this this family was selling a farm and they had the, the farm value and they also had a lot of crop or grain in storage on the farm. They were going to get hit with selling the farm, the value there, the, I can't think of the word, but anyway, what the value were, was going to be taxed on there. Plus they were going to get hit by the value on the on the crop. Well, this, this company had a way that they could come in and structure that that grain sale and pay it out over about 10 years, seven or eight, 10 years, something like that, which saved, I think they said that uh, this particular sale right here, it was several million dollars and they were going to have about a $500,000 tax bill on it at the end. And this company saved them about $200,000, $300,000, which, you know, that's not a lot, but it is a lot too. There's
0: (laughs) a lot. And it's, it's a good way too, from what I've read about this, where you can, stage out payouts. Yeah. And keep them just under the tax level bracket tiers. Yeah. That would <laughs> hammer you. Yeah, <laughs> you would. That's right. Yes, yeah. So. I mean, when you, it's just like anything else. If you
1: plan ahead, you can usually figure out some way. I mean, big companies pay big fees to keep from having to pay a lot of taxes. Yeah, strategy. <laughs> strategy. Yeah. That's right. There, there are ways that, you know, even a small farm can, can do it if you've got time if you aren't forced to sell today and you've got say a year or two years to try and figure out how you're going to get out of this.
0: That's the hardest part. Cause you know, even in just traditional businesses, when we go to look at a business and uh, you start to, they're, they're literally being forced to sell for a variety of reasons and they run, they run the gamut. But when you come back with what the actual value of the company or the business is uh, sometimes they get offended. Because they, they they spent so much time in the business and now they're up against the wall to sell the business and it's not as maximized as yeah. it could have been.
1: You've got 20, 25 years of somebody's life.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and so then this is all it's um, worth. Unfortunately, <laughs> the, the tough part is time doesn't equal value no. when it comes to valuation. Uh-uh. It just doesn't. No. So the more you can be proactive in these things, one of the things that working with Walt, you know, I'm hoping that when people hear this, for those people that are ready or are thinking that way, they'll you know obviously contact us, get in touch, figure out how to how to start that process because it's not a it's not gonna happen overnight. No, it's not. It takes time
1: it takes from the time. time you
0: have a very the very first time you have a conversation to even understand yeah. the scope of what needs to be done, and it's different for everybody. And
1: with a farming operation, it's it's really specific. Now, with if you're selling a house in a subdivision. You've got this house and that house and that house down the street all look just alike. got comps. You've got comps. (laughs) Whereas with this type of sale, you don't. You've got sales that you can look at for something like that. But with a farm, you've got a lot of different aspects that can be valued on this farm. And if you've got time to try and figure out how to market those, that's what you're looking for.
0: Or to develop them a or little more. them, Or develop yeah. them
1: a little more. Yeah, however you want to do it.
0: So, one thing I was going to say is obviously, you know, to start that process, it requires that first set of conversations. Let's talk a little bit about that. How can people reach out to you if they want to know more about this? How can where, uh, what's the best way for people to contact well, you? Well, here at
1: United Country Heartland Real Estate and Auction, we've got people here in this office that their specialty is, is farms and auctions. So that's a way to liquidate right there. You can get a hold of me specifically if you want to, but there's other people here in this office that... Uh,
0: you guys have s- different niche markets too inside of that. Like you have row cropping and then I think you have game farms. You, yeah. do, you do a bunch of different Yeah, stuff. Well, there's about... Uh,
1: United Country itself is the largest lifestyle farm, land and auction company nationwide. There is a specific real estate or... or residential company that kind of touts themselves as the largest residential in the United States. I worked for them for a long time. But now with the largest land and farm type land and auction company nationwide, uh, we have about 3,500 agents, I think, over the United States that kind of network together to be able to market stuff. There's a catalog put out every every month of nationwide farms and uh, lifestyle properties. They've got twenty, nineteen, 19 or 20 different specialties in United Country that they look at from land, farms, chicken farms. They get down real specific mm. uh, chicken farms, uh, hunting properties, uh, golf course properties. That's a whole different industry right there is you can take a, cow pasture that a uh, couple of hundred acres and develop it into a pretty good golf course. And mm-hmm. so if you got say 300 acres, you can sell off around it. It's like we were talking about selling off the frontage on, on a farm and sell the house lots. You can pay for the golf course selling off the lots and then tar- charge the green fees and all that other stuff just to maintain it. And you've got a business, you know, kind of put together right there. Interesting. And United country has got a specific category. Where we market specific those kinds of uh, properties you know specifically but um, here in 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 our office here we've got uh, row crop, we've got pasture land, we've got a couple of houses on golf course uh, you know stuff like that that uh, can be marketed so you cover a lot of area yeah a lot of area I mean we're licensed in Kentucky and Tennessee specifically if we want to represent a buyer, we can kind of go about anywhere.
0: You have access to networks. Uh, yeah, networks it, yeah.
1: all over. I mean, like I said, there's 3,500 agents in the United Country network, and we all get emails and stuff like that. Can send emails and you know advertise property inside the group that somebody in California may see something you know in Florida and decide that. That's a what they want to do. They do it, yeah. With the network, you can do it. Yeah. And like I said a a little while ago, a way to maybe diversify your farm is to relocate part of it. I got involved with this dairy deal that I was working with with a guy in Kansas who was looking to. He needed to diversify some of his. What he was doing, he ended up buying a feedlot in uh, Texas and uh, was growing heifers out in that feedlot. And, and he was bringing them back. He had a 1,500 or 3,000 cow dairy operation. So he needed a lot of replacements every year. And he was uh, not able to grow them out there, but he ended up buying a feedlot in Texas and feeding out down there. And he was, what he didn't bring back to his own operation, he was selling his dairy heifers and they went
0: all over the United States. Mm.
1: So, you know, like
0: another separate division a division. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what I'll do is obviously I'll include all of Walt's contact information below. And if you want to have that conversation with them again, this is obviously a very specialized conversation in some aspects, but but it's also really relevant in this part of the world where we're doing business every day. Yeah. And so, you know, if you come across somebody who's in this situation and, and needs that kind of expertise, definitely reach out. And while I want to thank you for being a part of this today and agreeing today. Glad to do this. Yeah. And it. Uh, we'll, very interesting. We'll do another one in the future. Yeah. I'd like to cover the topic of, you know, post transaction strategies once both of us get a little bit more up to speed on some of these other products we were talking about. Yeah. It'd seem interesting. So excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. If you're in the market for a business or you'd like to see examples of the businesses that we have for sale, go to acmebizbrokers.com forward slash listings. You can browse our featured as well as our standard listings and you can download the spec sheets on each business. Thank you for listening to the Sell My Business podcast. Be sure to subscribe to listen to future episodes. Follow us on Twitter at AcmeBizBrokers. All content is copywritten. Acme Business Brokers 2018.